I will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore. Welcome to the table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. We worship at Island Creek Elementary School, 7855 Morning View Lane, every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. you to pay attention to each story in and alone and also connected. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named um, Ananias. Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. And then a little shorter story in the same chapter. As Peter also, you have Paul and Peter. As Peter was traveling around the country, he went to visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. Nearby in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed, and turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes, and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet, and then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. So I'm, I'm in the process of this thing. Some of you know this. Um, I'm in the process of writing papers for ordination, and... Um, there's this weird thing where they ask you to apply to apply. This is very Methodist. It's very, like, so many procedures. So, so this week I had to apply to apply to write these papers that are due before Thanksgiving. And so when they ask you to apply to apply, you have to write what they call your call statement. A call statement is really the story of what God has been doing in my life from the very beginning, how God from, from the beginning of my life has led me to this place where I'm seeking ordination in the Methodist church. And, and within a call story is the conversion story, how it is that God began turning my heart toward Jesus long ago. And I have to write this story. I, I have to admit, um, this story of mine is at various lengths saved on my computer, probably about 11 times, because every year of this journey, they have asked me to write this story, and this time they've asked it to be one page. <laughs> So this week I was tweaking and I was condensing 
one of these versions that I had saved on my computer and so, um, so that I could apply to apply, this, do this thing, and I noticed something. <laughs> I noticed how daggone ordinary my story is. I noticed how God met me and converted me in fairly ordinary ways. There were no burning bushes. There were no audible voices from God. There were no uh, going blind and receiving sight again. God met me in the mundane of my life. Um, Or rather, maybe God turned my mundane into something extraordinary. This is the kind of conversion that I know of God working with an individual like me with the kind of everydayness of life in order to grab my attention over time, in order to pull me closer to God. That's really what conversion is, is God kind of saying, hey, hey, turn over here. Hey, look this way. Look this way. Over, this is where I am. Yep. Um, and then go this way. That, that's, that's kind of what conversion is. Hey, look this way. But, but today's scriptures, these two stories in Acts 9, show us conversion on a completely different scale. It's not ordinary at all in these, in these stories. Acts 9 tells two stories of two conversions that both in their own ways are far-fetched at, at best. Conversions that resulted not just in reaching one person, but reaching entire towns afterwards. These are like Oprah-scale stories. They're the kind that trend on Twitter or you write a, a movie about. And I have to say, they make me feel inept, unqualified, and a little uncomfortable. So here's Saul, this official in the Jewish synagogue who the scripture says was breeding murderous threats against the Lord's people, the man who calls for the execution of Christians but is too important to actually get his hands dirty. They, a couple of chapters back, we saw him standing on the sideline holding the coats at Stephen's stoning. He's blinded by a light on the road to Damascus. I've never been blinded by a light. Here's Saul, an, an enemy of the early church claimed by God as God's chosen instrument. Jesus says the words, you are my chosen instrument. God has never told me whether this call is legitimate. <laughs> I think it is. Saul, who, who is converted to Paul the apostle upon Ananias laying on his hands and And he has this healing and this conversion moment and scales of violence and manipulation and fear that kind of let his life just fall from his eyes. And I have never had anything like that happen to me. (laughs) It says that the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria came face to face with God's love, proclaimed through Paul, and the church just kept increasing in number. My story did not convert anyone else. (laughs) And then here's Tabitha. This woman who gave her life to charity and works, but as we know, this kind of faith does not prevent you from illness and death, and so she dies, and and they send for Peter, and Peter comes into the room, and he says to Tabitha, Tabitha, get up. And like that, she opens her eyes, and she's healed, and she looks at Peter, and Peter grabs Tabitha by the hand, and he takes her out, and he shows her to all the women and all the town. He shows her to be alive again. I've never had terminal illness that I've come back from. I've, I was never dead and was brought back to life. And the people of Joppa, they just eat this story up. And it says that they just all convert in one day. I've never converted a whole town. And as the news spread, the story tells us that many in the faith came to the Lord. As a pastor who cares about people turning their life around toward God, something I'm supposed to care about, this over-the-top miraculous story deflates me a bit. 
Because if this is the kind of story, if these are the kind of stories that it takes to convert people, to convert a large group of people, to create the church, then it might be time for me to throw in the towel. Because maybe, maybe you, maybe you people have seen people who are dead raised to life again, but I have not. (laughs) Things that were once alive and then die, they don't come back to life. And people who are murderous, typically don't turn around and convert people to faith. And we sophisticated D.C. metro people, we know better, right? We know better than to hope for anything different. But I thought I'd do a little crowd sourcing this week just in case. And so in some of you, I saw some of you in various settings, and I asked you, um, hey, y'all know anybody who has died and then been brought back to life? Y'all weren't very helpful. Nobody said they had. And so then I I was with a a bunch of pastors at this conference this week, and I thought I'd ask them. I said, hey, pastors, you people, you like to tell stories of miraculous conversions. Y'all know anybody who's been raised from the dead and and better yet, converted a whole village afterwards? No, one pastor said, that's why I never preach on the Tabitha story. But where you and my pastor friends proved clearly unhelpful, YouTube came through for me this week. There are a lot of things on YouTube. (laughs) And so I invite you to go home later on today and Google people raised from the dead and, you know, waste away your Sunday afternoon. But there's this video on YouTube entitled The 15 Dead People Who Came Back to Life, which showed me this is why you all have never seen people come back to life. There's only 15 of them and they don't live anywhere near here. But that video, that video had 7 million views. 7 million. We sophisticated, scientifically informed people, we know that things that are alive and die do not come back to life. We don't have any stories that contradict this, but 7 million views. There is something in us, in a lot of us, that wants to hope that there's a power in the world strong enough that can bring people back from the dead. There's a power in the world strong enough that can, t- can take corrupt people in power and convert them into a new way of thinking and believing, even if we've never seen it. There are millions of people, cynical, sophisticated people, that wonder if the God who raised Tabitha through Peter and, and the God who converted Saul to Paul is still at work in the world today. And if this God is still at work, we cynical and sophisticated people wonder, could this God possibly even bring new life in me? I'm not even sure if these millions of people want to know about Carlos, one of the 15 who woke up in the middle of his own autopsy in Venezuela. But when 7 million people watch a video on YouTube, perhaps what they want to believe, even just for a flicker of a moment, is that this resurrecting God is not finished with us yet. And while I don't have any bodily stories of resurrection to regale you with today, no tales of crowds converting because someone was um, dead and now is alive again, I I can say that this resurrecting God is hell-bent on bringing life out of death. I've seen it too many times not to believe it. This past week, as the one-year anniversary of the Unite the Right in Charlottesville approached, and there's news coverage about it, and people are wondering what's ahead in D.C. today. One story cropped to the surface has nothing less than extraordinary. Nearly one year ago, Ken Parker joined hundreds of other white nationalists at a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. That day, he wore a black shirt 
with two lightning bolts sewn into the collar, and it's the uniform of the National Socialist Movement, an American neo-Nazi group. Parker said he felt the need to be in Charlottesville on August 12, 2017, to stand up for the white race. He said it was thinly veiled as an effort to save our monuments and to save our heritage, but he knew, and he said we all knew, when we went in there that it was going to turn into a radically heated situation and it wasn't going to work out for either side. A few months later, Parker saw an African-American man having a cookout by the pool in his neighborhood. As the sun set and the crowd thinned, Parker and his then-girlfriend approached the man, William McKinnon, the pastor of All Saints Holiness Church. He didn't know he was a pastor until he was introduced. After a couple of other encounters in the neighborhood, McKinnon invited Parker to the church's Easter service this past April 17, 2018. Six years after he joined the Klan and just seven months after Charlottesville happened. A month later, he stood before, talk about vulnerability, he stands before this mostly African-American congregation, this new church, and he says, I, Ken Parker, I was a grand dragon of the KKK, and then the Klan wasn't hateful enough for me, so I decided to become a Nazi. And the people in that small church, their, their jaws just drop. But after the service, he says, not a single one of them said anything negative to me. They're coming up to me and they're hugging me and they're thanking me for sharing my story and building me up and not tearing me down. And from there, the, the transformation just kind of sped up. And on this past July 21st, less than a month ago, wearing a different kind of robe, Parker waded into the Atlantic Ocean, surrounded by members of that same church, McKinnon embraced him and then dipped his head into the water to baptize him. He rose up, blinking and wiping the water from his face, and then he walks out into a line of congregants waiting to receive him and hug him. And then this past Monday, Parker took off his shirt at Laser Skin Solutions Tattoo Removal in Jacksonville, revealing a swastika and Klan symbol on his left leg, a Confederate flag, and the words white pride, and he was washed clean as snow. And after the news segment, Chris Matthews, the TV anchor, not my husband, was reporting on this, and he said, I'm absolutely confounded. I have never seen or reported on anything like this before. And I thought, I've seen this before. Here he goes again. The resurrecting God, who will relentlessly wrangle life out of death, who can bring light out of darkness. There he goes again. I know this God. And I, I see it in many ways here, too. I see it not just on, in newsworthy ways. I see it in ordinary ways as well. I see it in those who are in our community who, who are working through addiction and, and people who are being pulled out from under the covers over and over again to come to church even when depression kind of takes over their life. And I see it in, in marriages being mended and, and in angry, lonely people, angry, lonely people who thought they could never find peace again coming and setting up church and something changes them. I see it in this church. Who the heck comes to a cafeteria? Like, what is the matter with you people? And I, I mean, you could go to places much nicer than this with pews and pretty, like, surroundings, right? And, and the, where there, there's not the spell, smell of spoiled milk sometimes, and there's not 20 cafeteria tables blocking the bathroom door, and where there's, the temperature is always regulated, right? Um, but you come here, and you keep setting up chairs, and, and you, you schlep boxes to, to the nursery, and you keep ascended to this, ascending to this place to pray and to sing and to gather together. 
And every time you do it, it's a miracle to me. And I say, look, there goes that God again. It is proof to me of just how tenacious and insatiable and downright perplexing, perplexing this God is. The God who uses violent religious officials like Saul, dead women like Tabitha, neo-Nazis like Ken, and churches like us to bring life out of death in places we don't anticipate and people we don't approve of through means we could not imagine. Would you pray with me? God, we don't have any proof that you resurrect people from the dead except for what your word says you do. And yet we all know what it's like to feel dead and to come alive again. There are many here in our our community now, I know, who have been feeling kind of lifeless. And so we offer that all to you. I also know there are many people in our community who have been brought fully alive by being here. And so we offer them to you. And God, we ask that you would move in their hearts to, to partner and to, and to dig in and to tell their story and to be vulnerable so that we together as a community can, can begin to pull each other out of the depths of hell. We lift up to you specifically today um, our D.C. metro area and this day that um, has a lot of fear wrapped around it and also a lot of love wrapped around it. God, it's so easy to focus in on all that is wrong with the world, but then we, then we see stories like Ken Parker and we know that there is one less neo-Nazi today and that brings us hope. We join together in that prayer that you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Party and 